Welcome to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. This week, we'll discuss U.S. grumbling over peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. You would think Washington would welcome peace between two regional rivals, but no, Washington is deeply upset and the Biden administration is threatening Saudi Arabia. We're also going to discuss the presidential candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as a Democrat. But first, we turn to Israel-Palestine, where violence against occupied Palestinians is increasing. Protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu continue inside Israel, and a military escalation took place during the first week of April at the intersection of the holidays of Ramadan and Passover, as Israeli troops stormed into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam, attacked and forcibly removed worshippers using tear gas and rubber bullets, triggering a region-wide escalation. Rockets flew into Israeli colonies from southern Lebanon and from the Gaza Strip, leading to Israeli strikes on the occupied Gaza Strip and on open areas in Lebanon, as well as threats from Hezbollah to retaliate further. So what's going on here? What's behind these raids? Why were Israeli troops in the Al-Aqsa compound? And who's behind Benjamin Netanyahu that's leading to protests and regional violence? There's one figure, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who comes from the most extreme movement in Israeli society and one of the most extreme religious movements in the entire Middle East. And we're going to talk about him, along with my colleague at the Gray Zone, Aaron Maté, the history of this movement and how it has risen to power and taken control of the Israeli police and even gained control of a private state-backed militia. So let's listen to this conversation about how extreme religious nationalists in the Israeli ruling coalition are fueling region-wide violence and pushing for Armageddon. Well, well, let's set the scene a little bit. I mean, most of our viewers know there is the most right-wing or religiously extreme coalition in power in Israel with members of the Otzma Yehudit or Jewish Power Party who are acolytes of the fanatical hate preacher Meir, Meir, Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, the late hate preacher Meir Kahana in Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition. So Netanyahu was previously seen as kind of an extreme figure, is actually the moderate in this coalition holding things together. And these are figures who want to invade the Al-Aqsa compound and usher in a third Jewish temple in order to bring about the messianic redemption of the land of Israel. Uh, these are some of the most dangerous and fanatical figures that have ever been in an Israeli governing coalition, um, which in some ways lifts the mask on what Zionism has always been. But we'll get into that. Let's just set the scene with what happened on April 4th and April 5th at the Al-Aqsa, inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque when Israeli security forces 
violated the status quo. I'll explain the status quo in a second, but let's just see some video of what took place. I mean, these are Israeli forces. Palestinian worshippers with rifle butts on the night of April 4th, on Tuesday night. And they are trying to force them out. Here's a... Israeli forces beating Palestinian men as they attempted to leave the mosque. It's sort of like a ritual beating. These are the, those are the Magav, the border police, uh, who patrol East Jerusalem, the occupied East Jerusalem in the old city. And you can see here that um, this is Isa Amro from Hebron, um, noting that the Israeli police used numbers to identify the detained worshipers from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, those they arrested that night. And then the, the following day, this is probably April 5th. Yeah, this is April 5th. Uh, where'd they get that idea for numbers from? Uh, previously during the second Intifada, Israeli occupation forces had written numbers on the arms of men it arrested in occupied cities. And this became a big scandal in Israel because of course, Jews were had numbers tattooed on their arms in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, but we can see this practice returning. So it's kind of like never again, but conditions apply. Um, what was going on there? What was taking place? Well, this, st this started um, mid on midnight, so late Tuesday night. Let's step back actually a little bit. It's Passover. Um, we just celebrated, my family just celebrated Passover and it's also Ramadan. It's the Ramadan season. And the weather is heating up in Israel-Palestine. It's protest season. It's the season when fighting and wars and clashes usually take place. Uh, Ramadan is a very emotional time. People grow closer to their community. Uh, and if your community is surrounded by troops, then you may actually be blockaded in for Passover. And the Passover holiday, as celebrated by fundamentalist elements, in Israel is extremely ethnocentric. In each generation, a new foe has risen up to destroy us. Uh, it culminates with the killing of the Gentile firstborn. And I have seen this explicitly invoked by state-backed Israeli uh, religious nationalist rabbis to justify the killing of Palestinians. Some would say it's a perversion of Judaism, but that's their ethnocentric or ethno-fascist interpretation. So everyone was predicting violence. And everyone was predicting that the violence would take place around the Al-Aqsa compound, which for these fundamentalists is the site of the future third Jewish temple. So Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Israeli forces came in to Al-Aqsa Mosque. They broke in and they were trying to remove Palestinian worshipers who had stayed after evening prayers um, for um, itikaf, which is, you know, night prayers but it's also a form of resistance because they knew that these fanatical settlers were going to raid the compound the following day and conduct Jewish prayer in violation of the status quo. The status quo means the um, regime that had been put into place to keep the peace around the old city after 1967, where the Islamic Waqf, which is uh, maintained by Jordan, oversees the Al-Aqsa compound, and then Israel and its security forces 
get to control the Western Wall where Jewish worship takes place. But these fanatical settlers, they don't want to just worship at the Western Wall and they don't actually believe in Jewish prayer per se. Their idea of sanctifying God is through the mass sacrifice of goats and sheep. And what they've been seeking to do is smuggle sheep into the Al-Aqsa compound. They've even offered $5,000 bounties to take sheep into the Al-Aqsa compound or goats and sacrifice them. And so you have this taking place. Then the Israeli forces come in to forcibly remove Palestinian worshipers who are staying there overnight and also trying to prevent it. It leads to these scenes of beating. And the provocation has led to a response in the form of rockets from Lebanon first, which is the first time we've seen rockets actually target the northern colonies of Israel. Here's a look at those rockets. And they did serious damage. I mean, the Iron Dome didn't work here. This is the Iron Dome that we're subsidizing, by the way, as U.S. taxpayers. So this is serious. It's serious when rockets come in from Lebanon for the first time since 2006. And most of you watching will remember that 2006 was the time that Israel suffered a bloody nose. It was effectively beaten out of southern Lebanon by Hezbollah, the main resistance faction in the Shia resistance faction. Uh, based in in Beirut and southern Lebanon. So what Hezbollah is sending the message here, if you respond, we will respond even more strongly and you do not want that because we can hit Haifa, we can hit your northern cities and blanket them in rockets, katushas, and maybe more. All of this happened because of these settler fanatics. Remember, 2014, settler fanatics triggered the devastating war between Israel and the factions of the Gaza Strip after they kidnapped and murdered a 15-year-old boy in occupied East Jerusalem, Mohammed Abu Qader, pouring gasoline down his throat and setting him on fire. Then 2021, same thing, settler fanatics attempting to take over Palestinian homes in the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah triggered a response from the factions in the Gaza Strip who took it upon themselves to protect those families in East Jerusalem and declare that we are not separate here in the Gaza Strip. There were also incursions into the Temple Mount. And then we have this current situation where this extreme government is in power, but it's not just an extreme government. It's fanatics like Itamar Ben-Gavir who are actually in charge of Israeli police, Israeli security factions, and who are followers of this temple movement, which seeks to destroy the Al-Aqsa compound and replace it with a third Jewish temple. And back in January, Itamar Ben-Gavir, if you don't know who he is, he was like the lawyer for the most fanatical violent settlers for years and has risen to power through this coalition. He actually went to the Al-Aqsa compound in a flagrant provocation aimed at provoking violence. Hamas called this uh, a potential detonator of violence in the region. And you can see who's around Itamar Ben-Gavir. 
right now. This guy is the security minister in charge of his own private army. He's surrounded by the Israeli police as he enters the third holiest site in Islam. Now, there's another. And Max, this is, Max, this is basically like the playbook, right? They do this every yeah. time or whenever they want to uh, trigger uh, a round of violence. I mean, um, Ariel Sharon did the same thing back in, in 2000. 2000, right? Um, okay, so, so Sharon like, brought. They must his, have this in some playbook that they just dust off every time they want to have or have a have an excuse to bomb Gaza and yeah. raid the occupied West Bank. Yeah, Sharon uh, triggered the Second Intifada deliberately because he knew that it would advance his own uh, plans, which he eventually got through through the Gaza disengagement. Back in 2000, he he ascended to the Al-Aqsa compound, caused violence in the old city that spun completely out of control. Israel then fired a million bullets against Palestinians in the month of October 2000 as part of their push strategy to cause Palestinian violence. There had been no suicide bombings by that point. Yeah. And then the bombings followed. Yes, so but Sharon, however, was secular. This is this is a religious figure who has called this month for riots and invasions of the Al-Aqsa compound and who is linked to a movement that began well, it began many, many decades ago, gained strength through the 1967 occupation of the West Bank where these and East Jerusalem, where these holy sites were opened. Uh, but in the 1980s, you saw a mentor of Itamar Ben-Gvir, Yisrael Ariel, start the Jewish underground to actually bomb the Al-Aqsa compound, to blow it up, um, to give way to the third Jewish temple. In 1996, the Yesha Council of Settler Rabbis issued uh, their version of a fatwa, basically declaring that the Orthodox Jewish understanding of the Al-Aqsa compound, which is that Jewish prayer is forbidden unless Jews are first purified by water mixed with the ashes of a red heifer, is null and void, and that Jews should just go up there and start praying. Um, it was at that same time that one of these figures from the Yesha Council, Dov Lior, declared then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin a Din Rodef, or a pursuer of Jews. And when you're declared a Din Rodef, a, a Jewish fundamentalist has an obligation to kill you. And so one of Lior's followers killed Rabin. Why? Because the Oslo Accords were seen as an obstruction to the seizure of the entire land of Israel, which would have provided the basis for messianic redemption. So Rabin had to be killed. So then we move to 2000, as you pointed out, Aaron, Ariel Sharon going there, triggering violence. And then we move to the present day as this temple movement gained strength with Israeli state support and one of its key figures gaining control of the police and through a deal recently cut with Netanyahu, his own private militia of 2000 hooligans in police uniform. So wait, so Itamar Ben-Gavir, this fanatic, gets his own, how does that work? He gets his own private militia, like to do what? To crack down on protests inside Israel, to attack Palestinian citizens of Israel. Basically, the deal was cut because Ben-Gavir had first convinced Netanyahu to carry out judicial reforms, which would have given the settlers more power and supposedly democratized the judiciary, which led to these massive protests that we've been seeing in Israel against Netanyahu among the liberal population that believes in the Supreme Court. And so that's putting a lot of pressure on Netanyahu. So first to relieve the pressure from his right, Netanyahu says, we're going to suspend the judicial reforms and I will give you, Ben Gavir, 
and your people, your own private militia, if you just stop pushing uh, on the courts. Right. And then to relieve the pressure from his left, Netanyahu has the opportunity to send the police in to beat the hell out of Palestinian worshipers, knowing that it will trigger violence. And that violence, the rockets, the news cycle, it will overwhelm the protests and people will start to kind of more come together as a society because now the Negev or Nakab region in Israel's south is under rocket fire from Gaza and the northern colonies have been hit with rockets too. Um, you know, people are going into bomb shelters. It's the perfect situation for Netanyahu. But the, 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 the most clownish fanatical figures are in charge of Israel's security forces and they in many ways hold the reins and are deciding where things are going. And then you have Hezbollah deciding, you're afraid of us. You will not strike us back in any meaningful way unless you want to trigger a regional war. And so mm -hmm. we're we're going to demonstrate deterrence. And they did so. What was Israel's response in Lebanon? They hit some open spaces, like some uh, farms. They didn't want to get uh, get things going with Hezbollah. So, so, so that's interesting. So Israel will obviously keep bombing Gaza because Gaza is relatively defenseless. It's an open air prison. But you're saying that in Lebanon, Israel does not want that fight right now. Well, even in Gaza, it's important to note that Israel did the same thing, which they often do, where they bomb what they call Hamas training sites, which are open fields. And these training sites frequently change. They didn't want to escalate with the factions in Gaza because we saw in 2021, those factions were able to actually arrange rocket set pieces over Tel Aviv to actually strike targets more accurately and more far away from Gaza than they ever had before and cause serious disruptions and destabilization inside Israeli society. So Netanyahu is trying, along with his security chiefs, are trying to prevent things from falling apart uh, in, 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 as far as the security situation is concerned. And, but he's, the, the politics of Israel have been destabilized internally. So Netanyahu's besieged on all sides. He uh, recently dismissed his defense chief, which led to or intensified all of these military reservists, particularly those in aligned with the liberal or centrist secular factions of the Ashkenazi elite in, in Israel, you know, the people you see out protesting in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, military reservists refusing to perform duties. Who are these military reservists? Uh, they're led by Air Force officers. The Air Force officers are like the cream of the crop of Israeli society. They're the most educated. Uh, they tend to be, you know, white and tend to come from the liberal parts of society. And they're also the ones who carry out the bombings of Gaza that leave entire families massacred. And they refuse to perform duty. Why? Because they oppose this far right government and the attack by Netanyahu on his own security chiefs because they won't go along with the legal reforms. So you can see how complicated this is getting yeah. uh, for Netanyahu and how unstable it is. Um, but then, you know, you have so much of the population supporting people like Itamar Ben-Gavir, turning away not only from the kind of status quo that's prevailed legally or politically, but from the Orthodox Jewish status quo to a pure ethno-fascism, a pure Jewish supremacism, because what they have grown up in 
is nothing but military service, years and years of conflict and propaganda against Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims in general. So it's a tinderbox right now. It could go anywhere, but Netanyahu, I mean, it's just so ironic to say it, but Netanyahu is the one who's trying to prevent an escalation. I think Israel's totally lost control. I don't know if you saw this, Max, but recently, um, the they have like they had this envoy this global envoy to combat anti-semitism uh yeah. Yeah. and she recently was forced to step down because i think she mildly criticized the judicial reforms or something yeah, yeah. and she's she's a person who goes around calling everyone anti-semitic if they dare to criticize israel right and even she was forced out because i think she mildly or she voiced some sort of tepid support for the protests or something yeah her name is noah tishby yeah. And she's sort of like an actress and uh, a model who was put up there to denounce everyone as an anti-Semite because she's essentially <laughs> telegenic and, you know, they needed her to do that job to just in the, this, this fake job of di- labeling every criticism of Israel a form of anti-Semitism. And here's a good reply to Noah Tishby resigning from Rachel Roberts, who is a anti-Zionist Jewish activist. Here, here's Noah Tishby's uh, resignation. It's with disappointment and sadness that I can confirm that the current Israeli government has dismissed me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, at some point you'll realize that no matter how much I make up, how high you hike your skirt or how much you flirt with talk show hosts, the cause you work for is unjust and the people you work for are racist scum. I don't know if Noah Tishby will realize that just like I don't believe that the protesters in Israel in Israel proper will realize that what they are protesting for is just another more enlightened form of racist eth- ethnocentric Zionism. Um, they just essentially want the mask put back on their system. Uh, they're not protesting against the brutalization of Palestinians at Al-Aqsa. They just don't want these fanatical clowns running their country. And here's a really illustrative video of Israeli protesters uh, begging AIPAC to save them from Netanyahu. Everybody out there, we're heading for dark times. AIPAC, we need you. We need you with us. Hey, Pat, you've supported Israel through all our wars. This is the war for Israel's future. We are in a critical moment now. It's about time that Howard Kohl will raise his voice, not just behind the screen, because we're on the edge. <laughs> wow. We ask of the representatives from APAC here today to tell our Prime Minister that they believe Israel should stay a strong democracy as it is today. You cannot be quiet. So dramatic. Please, please help us. What do they want APAC to do? Let's do it together. What the hell? Oh, the handmaiden's tale. That's like the thing that liberals do under Trump. They do the handmaiden's tale. Well, they want APAC to speak up uh-huh. uh, against Netanyahu and all of the anti-democratic measures. But a- what is APAC? But you know, the apartheid lobby that supports every brutal war yeah. provides the the perfect, I mean, it, without APAC, there would be no funding for the occupation. APAC is the 
oil that greases the wheels of the occupation and apartheid machine. And so that shows you the contradictions of these liberal Zionist protests, which preceded all of this violence. And I think inflamed it in a lot of ways because Netanyahu needed something to get him out of that. Mm. I mean, he was getting criticized lightly even by the Biden administration. There were some rumors that this was sort of a Biden color revolution to get Netanyahu out. I didn't really see enough evidence to support that. Um, and Max, let me ask you, what's up with yeah. the Palestinian Authority? They're still ruled by Abbas, who's yeah. in his 80s. I don't even know what he does anymore. Uh, but what, like, what is the role that they're playing in acting still as the subcontractors for the occupation? And is there, you know, is there any movement for any kind of uh change among among palestinians in their leadership in the west bank because it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong but that the palestinian authority is a serious roadblock to any kind of uh actual resistance yeah there was a summit in aqaba uh with abbas and the pa and many of their so-called partners who are basically the patrons keeping this vichy regime alive in the west bank and it was really a means of pumping formaldehyde into the corpse of the PA. The PA is still active, however, and they have control of the security apparatus in the West Bank, which means that while Abbas constantly and his people constantly say they're suspending security collaboration with the Israeli army, they never fully do so because it would mean unleashing another intifada or chaos However, their control of the security apparatus has never been weaker, and the control or influence of the traditional resistance factions, whether it's Fatah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or Hamas, over the minds of Palestinian youth in the West Bank has never been weaker. And that's why we've seen the rise of this element called the Lion's Den, which is essentially an informal grouping of young men who simply want to fight Israeli forces inside their own cities and prevent armed incursions. Uh, they represent no faction deliberately, and it's gained popularity all across any occupied area to the point where we're seeing more armed resistance against Israeli forces in the West Bank than at any time since the end of the Second Intifada, which effectively ended in the Balata refugee camp with a fight between the Palestinian Authority and the mm. last vestiges of Palestinian resistance factions. And now we're seeing again in Balata's in Nablus, we're seeing um, Palestinian resistance forces, particularly grouped in Nablus, fighting Israeli soldiers directly. They're taking lots of bodies. That's why you, when you hear about all of these Israeli raids, or we saw recently a death squad roll up in Janine in an unmarked car with masked men actually shoot people in the street. That's because the lion's den is frightening Israel's security chiefs so much. Their nightmare is that uh, armed resistance takes over the West Bank and overwhelms the Palestinian Authority. So the Palestinian Authority is kind of the last thing standing between that and just um, all against all. And, and you know, and just as you're talking, I'm thinking, so what are Palestinians supposed to do? Right around right now is the anniversary of the Great March of Return. It kicked off in late March of what, 2018, I think. And what was yeah. that? That was when tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza 
go out marching simply for the right to live uh, in freedom uh, against this Israeli blockade, against the Israeli government that stole all their land, which is why so many millions of Palestinians live in Gaza is because they and their families are refugees. And what happened to them? They were just gunned down by Israeli soldiers yeah. u- using U.S.-made weapons. And the whole world just shrugged. Yeah. Um, just, you know, uh, just shrugged. And so even when there's mass organized nonviolent resistance, Palestinians get gunned down and the world doesn't care. You know, so yeah, I mean, I remember Thomas Friedman would always write this column whenever anything would happen uh, in Palestine, like any resistance would take place. Armed resistance, he would say, why don't Palestinians just get together and walk towards the walls that they're confined in and then liberals and the good people will meet them on the other side and say hey they're trying nonviolence, and we will uh let them in and then we're all just gonna like hold hands and sing kumbaya and then when they they did it they decided to do it and they were all i mean and they've been doing it actually smaller events like this in gaza for years and then they were all just shot in the knees by snipers i mean this is kind of what it looked like when a teen was killed in 2019. okay here so here he ran to the wall with nothing these are like uh not these are you know i've passed through these walls these are walls separate that just keep them in a literal open air prison there are actually remote controlled machine guns on top of those walls which allow a unit which is dozens of kilometers away to shoot people by remote control when they walk up to the walls. But then there are snipers perched there and they would just shoot these guys. Cause why they have to keep them out of Israel because they are not Jewish. That's the only reason these are 80% of these people are the descendants of refugees who were forced from their lands and their homes in 1948 in order to form a Jewish state that would maintain a Jewish demographic majority. And so basically Gaza is a warehouse, a walled in warehouse for surplus humanity that can't come back to Israel because it will upset the demographic majority they need to maintain, which is the essence of racism. And so they're all, these are the youth being shot in the knees for trying to walk into the first world from their open air prison. So what are they supposed to do? You raise a great question. What are they supposed to do? Uh, They've called for BDS. They've called for nonviolent boycotts. Israel declares that anti-Semitism and wages war on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. It shoots protesters. I've seen protesters get shot in the West Bank for nonviolently protesting the walls being built through their farms. So what are they supposed to do? Well, we learn on Passover that the sword comes into the world when justice is delayed and justice is denied and that's what is taking place right here when we see armed resistance against this occupation i don't know if there's anything else to say but what would americans do what would american farmers do what would republican red uh armed men in the rural areas do if a foreign army came and took their lands it would be like red dawn that's kind of the plot of red dawn and that's what palestinians are living through and have been living through for decades and decades
Well, you've been listening to my conversation with Aaron Maté about religious nationalists in Israel's ruling coalition driving region-wide violence. I'm Max Blumenthal, your host at Gray Zone Radio. We're now going to turn to CIA Director William Byrne's recent visit to Saudi Arabia, where he apparently threatened the Saudi royals over recent peace talks that were convened between themselves and the Iranian government at the behest of China's foreign ministry. The U.S. is understandably embarrassed that China's diplomacy is superseding theirs, but they also seem opposed to peace between these two regional rivals, which really says a whole lot about where Washington stands today in the Middle East. Let's take a listen. Um, and, and, and just one more quick note, Aaron, um, the Biden administration has blocked a UN resolution to condemn mm. Israel's violence at the Al-Aqsa compound and demand an, and to call for an update on the situation. Mm. And this takes place as the Biden state department simultaneously denounces peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which are being brokered by China. So it's clear what the mm -hmm. Biden administration is seeking to do, the same as the Trump administration, to give Israel carte blanche to rampage through the neighborhood. And what these peace talks are doing is removing Saudi Arabia as a coalition partner in the regional war that Israel wanted to wage against Iran, something that humanity should be happy about, but the Biden administration is not. Yes, Saudi Arabia just basically announced that it's, it's suspending its war on Yemen. And so peace is breaking out. And there was a report in the Wall Street Journal this week that the director of the CIA, William Burns, flew over to Saudi Arabia and, quote, expressed frustration, unquote, uh, with Saudi Arabia because they've made peace deals uh, with uh, Iran and also are talking about a peace deal with Syria. And they did so in talks brokered by Russia and China. So the CIA is outraged, very frustrated at peace breaking out uh, in areas that it wants to control. Yeah, here it is. Um, I, I, I said the State Department, but it's actually the CIA director, which is, is more critical if you think about CIA collaboration with Saudi Arabia and what it means and what kind of threats he could have meted out. But uh, CIA complained U.S. was blindsided by Saudi <laughs> outreach to Syria and Iran. So yeah, it also means that they're concerned that um, Saudi that that Syrian civilians won't be starved into oblivion anymore yeah. as uh, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, restores relations with the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and other regional partners. And here's the Wall Street Journal article. In the weeks since it was announced, Saudi Arabia has also neared an agreement to restore diplomatic ties with, with Syria. These negotiations were mediated by Russia. Damn, Russia's brokering peace. It's terrible. Leaving the U.S. on the sidelines of another major development in the Middle East. In an unannounced visit to Saudi Arabia early this week, CIA Director Burns expressed frustration with the Saudis. He told Mohammed bin Salman that the U.S. felt blindsided by Riyadh's rapprochement with Iran and Syria, countries that remain heavily sanctioned by the West under the auspices of Washington's global rivals. So Burns, I mean, first of all, Burns wanted the CIA and Burns knew knew him. They wanted um, Prince Nayef in because Prince Nayef 
had always been the pal of the CIA. He was the longtime security director for Saudi Arabia, and he was wounded by an Al Qaeda attack um, decades ago. And supposedly, as the story goes, it led him into kind of addiction to painkillers and maybe other drugs, and he was left sort of incapacitated. And then uh, that allowed bin Salman to kind of work his way in as crown prince and de facto leader as King Abdullah was kind of senile. And then you have the whole Khashoggi thing take place. I mean, so many things that happened in the past, I'm seeing in a different light now, like the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. He was on his way to a peace summit with Iran in Iraq, I mean, with Saudi Arabia when he was killed. So the US was trying to prevent that. Yeah. And then the whole Khashoggi thing, I see it uh, in a different light. Yeah. Um, What's funny about William Burns getting so mad at these peace talks is that he his whole his memoir is called The Back Channel, which is all about his skill at, you know, back channeling and having deals on the side, even with our enemies and what an important thing that is. So here are some back channels taking place outside of U.S. control. He's, fly, he's deployed to fly over there to express his frustration. And that line there in the journal about how these countries that Saudi Arabia is talking to, Iran and Syria, are heavily sanctioned. That's what this is about. Uh, these deals make it harder for the U.S. to isolate these countries and starve their children uh, and deprive them of food and medicine. And that's what the Biden administration is upset about because it deprives them of that tool of leverage. As you've written about, Richard Nephew, yeah. who works for the Biden administration, um, you know, bragged about the art of sanctions, how you know, being able to impose sieges on these countries gives the U.S. leverage. It's the art. So. What Burns is mad about is these peace deals are undermining the art of those sanctions. And I want to ask you, Max, I mean, given the fact that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are, you know, defying U.S. orders here and are making peace with uh, Iran and Syria, what does that mean for the think tanks, like the pro-Dirty War think tanks that they fund in D.C., who've spent so much time going after us and promoting sanctions, promoting the Dirty War in Syria? What does that mean for them? Do you think people like Charles Lister... Who, who's funded by the same Gulf monarchies that are now changing their policy a little bit? Does that mean that they continue in their staunch advocacy for sanctions and war? Or are they going to be forced to change their position because their funders' policy is changing as well? It's a good question. I think it'll be years before the think tanks reorient themselves. And by the way, since you brought up think tanks, I mean, the Carnegie Endowment was Bill Burns' think tank. And right when he left to be CIA director, they brought Matt Duss in. <laughs> um, but uh, the I, I think the think tanks are just cards that the Gulf states use to maintain their influence in Washington. They're not going away. Um, the larger issue here is that Saudi Arabia is now able to play both sides off one another because everyone needs their oil. Mm -hmm. China is one of the most oil-hungry countries on the planet. And they are now buying Saudi oil in the renminbi, in Chinese currency. So de-dollarization is taking place. This actually has been acknowledged by Fareed Zakaria, one of the Biden administration State Department's closest allies on his Sunday show. Uh, and it was a very succinct, concise, and I thought honest uh, under description of what's taking place to the dollar. The petrodollar is really the basis of American empire. And we're seeing that fall away so it all it makes me as i said it makes me rethink the khashoggi affair jamal khashoggi was 
said to be a CIA asset. He was a really important U.S.-backed uh, Saudi dissident who was being leveraged against Mohammed bin Salman. He was killed in the Turk in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul under mysterious circumstances. But then you had Gina Haspel, the CIA director, running around supposedly with audio of his killing. I don't know how she got it, playing it for world leaders to get them to sanction and attack Saudi Arabia. So it was obvious the US wanted Mohammed bin Salman out. And we thought maybe it's because he's becoming too independent. Uh, well, they certainly pushed him away from the US and now they're paying the price. And I think that they sensed that he was already moving away from them, that they couldn't control him. And so Burns's visit is sort of a last ditch attempt. And for the Saudis, I mean, as, as you mentioned, uh, ending the Yemen war, finding an exit ramp on Yemen is definitely in their interest. Uh, they also have a security situation inside their own borders in the region of Katif, which is where the Saudi Shia minority lives. Remember Saudi Arabia executed the uh, Shia leader, uh, Mohammed Nimr al-Nimr, uh, who, uh, you know, just grisly ex execution as part of a wave of executions when Mohammed bin Salman came in and there have been riots and protests there, but a deal with Iran would certainly improve the security situation inside Saudi Arabia. So, uh, and for Iran, well, of course, it's obvious why they would want to make peace with Saudi Arabia. If they can overcome this, and China and Russia can broker it. It's one of the biggest blows to U.S. empire since the since the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I can't think of anything else. Along with the de-dollarization process, so the world is changing so rapidly before our eyes. And we started this live stream with Israel Palestine. Well, the only way Palestinians are going to get out of the nightmare that they the long nightmare they've lived through is weakening of U.S. hegemony. They've always understood that. So this process, I think, could actually lead, perhaps, who knows, to an honest peace plan for Israel-Palestine brokered by another nation, maybe a country like China. This year must be what? This year, I believe, is the 30th anniversary of the fake peace process, or is it, 90, is it 94? I don't remember. 93 or 94. So we've had... Um, 30 years of this scam peace process, um, which has just been such a disaster. And maybe we'll finally break out of its clutches. But man, what a scam that was. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't just a scam. It was what laid the basis for the crisis we're living through. Because, yeah. I mean, the whole peace process was about hard separation of the Palestinians from Jewish Israelis. So it laid the basis for the apartheid wall through the West Bank, for sealing off Gaza, and uh, the whole destabilization of Israeli politics. When obviously the, the answer is sort of equality from the river to the sea as a means of challenging Zionism. And that's what the Palestinians who opposed Oslo were advocating. That's what Palestinians who support BDS are advocating. Yeah. Um, we had a question about, uh, and thank you for that uh, super chat. We had a question about um, the UAE normalizing with Syria and when will Russia stop Israel from bombing Syria, Aaron, I don't know if you wanted to weigh in there. Well, that's a great question. Uh, Russia lets Israel bomb Syria. If it wanted to, it could step in and stop it, but it doesn't. And because that's because Russia, I, I'm assuming, I think they're prioritizing the relationship with Israel 
I hope I said that right. Russia, if it wanted to, could stop Israel from bombing Syria. But Russia is prioritizing its relationship with Israel for whatever reason. Reasons I don't fully understand. But I well, it, one reason it, could be Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and this is this is part of the 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 theory that uh the Biden administration and the West were launching a color revolution by backing these liberal protests against Netanyahu, which is that Netanyahu's administration has refused to supply weapons to Ukraine or diplomatically openly support Ukraine. Why? Mm -hmm. One, because Russia is engaged in security coordination with Israel to allow it to bomb inside Syria, which makes, when I was in Syria, this was making Syrians very, very mad. Yes. Yes. They were furious about this. Two, yeah. there are close to 2 million, at least 1.5 million Israeli Jews from Russia inside Israel, which helped them win the demographic trench war against the Palestinians. And they have their own representatives like Avigdor Lieberman, who come out of Netanyahu's Likud party right. and maintain ties to Russia. Uh, Lieberman comes from Moldova, but they maintain ties to Russia. And there have been rallies in support of Russia's war effort inside Israel, like large rallies. Yeah. Uh, and they're not treated the same way they would be like if they happened in the US or Germany, where people would see it as this giant scandal. So that's why I think that's taking place. Um, and, and Syria is just coming back into the fold because it's just a natural restoration of ties now that the, the dirty war is over. Um, I think the U. Oh, I mean, we haven't even covered the attacks on US troops in Northeast Syria, but it seems like only a matter of time before those U.S. troops are winkled out as Syria starts to normalize with its neighbors. Especially now that Syria is also talking to Turkey. And yeah. Yeah. if a rapprochement happens there and perhaps even Turkish troops withdraw, um, that makes it harder for the U.S. to maintain um, its control of the parts of Syria that it has. Uh, and it gives the U.S. one less partner in strangulating Syria. But uh, I, it's I, you know I'd, I'd love to see the Russian government explain why it lets why it lets Israel bomb Syria so much because Israel's bombed Syria hundreds of times, and it's uh, you know when I was there too, I heard the same thing. People are really frustrated. People are, I mean, I heard gratitude toward Russia because Russia stepped in to stop the spread of ISIS and Al Qaeda, but still anger that Russia lets Israel carry out these periodic bombings that terrorize Syrians every pretty much every single week now this happens yeah even after the earthquake Israel's still bombing uh the airports of Syria uh hindering the delivery of aid yeah um it's it's one of their last one of their last cards uh, and they are at the same time frightened of real retaliation which will come from lebanon as we said you've been listening to my conversation with aaron matei at gray zone radio about the cia director threatening saudi arabia for its peace talks with iran brokered by china i'm your host max blumenthal we're now going to turn to the 2024 presidential race and home in on a candidate who is an outsider and who is already being attacked by corporate media. That's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And we're going to look at RFK Jr.'s foreign policy positions, something that's been overlooked 
but which will come as a pleasant surprise to anti-war activists who might be listening right now. It is in the public interest to know all this, but the there are elements of the state that don't believe the public should know everything. That's why directives were handed out, as we saw through the Twitter files, to censor or suppress tweets that they acknowledged were true about injuries related to the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, that it would cause vaccine hesitancy if people talked about getting injured on Twitter by this vaccine. And one of the biggest critics of the mandates that and that whole regime that we live through is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's declared his intention to run for president. And um, you know, he's being attacked, as can be expected. He's going to run as a Democrat. I, I don't know how far his campaign is going yet, whether it's still in an exploratory phase. I mean, I guess he's a presidential candidate. I don't know if he'll be allowed in the debates. Um, I think we're going to see how undemocratic the Democratic Party is. But if you look at any headline about him, they just say that he is an anti-vaccine crackpot or anti-vaccine advocate. That's how he's being described. He was right about the failings of the COVID-19, the mRNA vaccines from the beginning before they were even rolled out in Late 2020, he was saying they will not prevent transmission or infection. And uh, he was attacked for that and he proved right because what he was saying was it won't prevent, uh, it won't stop the pandemic as we're being told, as Rachel Maddow said. And it won't, um, it, it, it will lead to a bunch of asymptomatic or symptomatic carriers walking around thinking that they're fine and spreading it to others. So it's just, it's not going to work. But there is another side to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as the son of someone who was assassinated in a political assassination that he believes is unsolved. Uh, the son of someone who was monitored and undermined by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. As the son of someone who attempted to stop the Vietnam War. And as someone who is also a prominent environmental lawyer taking on corporate America and who has very strong opinions uh, against the, or about the evils of the U.S. war state, the CIA, and the FBI, uh, and who's hosted me on his podcast to talk about the Ukraine proxy war. And here's a statement, one of the first statements that RFK Jr. made as a Democratic presidential candidate. I just wanted to alert everyone that this is happening. Um, and here's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The collapse of U.S. influence over Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's new alliances with China and Iran are painful emblems of the abject failure of the neocon strategy of maintaining U.S. global hegemony with aggressive projections of military power. China has displaced the American empire by deftly projecting instead economic power. Over the past decade, our country has spent trillions bombing roads, bridges, ports, and airports. China spent the equivalent building the same across the developing world. The Ukraine war is the final collapse of the neocons short-lived American century. The neocon projects, the neocon projects in Iraq and Ukraine have cost 
$8.1 trillion, hollowed out our middle class, made a laughing stock of US military power and moral authority, pushed China and Russia into an invincible alliance, destroyed the dollar as the global currency, cost millions of lives, and done nothing to advance democracy or win friendships or influence. So this is someone who is going to attempt to be on the democratic debate platform. And I think at this point, I'm calling it a welcome intervention, and I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to Bobby Kennedy Jr. on this platform at some point in the near future. So, well, that'll watch do. This space. That'll do. Him, that'll do him wonders for the Democratic primary crowd to have him featured on the gray zone. He's yeah. Gonna, you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's about time we had someone uh, who just doesn't care about what the Democratic Party brokers think and relates to the base because there still is a part of the Democratic Party base that hates. MSNBC and all the tr pro-war trash they're pushing out that hasn't completely gone over. And as we saw with Jeremy Corbyn's labor candidacy, not comparing RFK to Corbyn, but I'm just speaking about a potential political phenomenon. He pulled tens and tens of thousands of mostly young people into the labor party who had been disgusted by Tony Blair and new labor. So uh, I hope that the Democratic Party, through RFK's candidacy, can become an arena of contestation as it was when Bernie in 2016 declared. And, that, and it seems like RFK is taking a much better line than Bernie did over U.S. empire. I'm Max Blumenthal. I've been your host here at Gray Zone Radio. If you want to see more of our work, check out thegrayzone.com. That's the G-R-A-Y zone.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. This show is produced by Christopher Weaver.